If you have your Bibles, I would like to encourage you to join me in John chapter 1. This goes without saying, but John's gospel account is amazing. It's scripture that we wish, we would long, we would hope that everyone in the entire world would have access to. Because in it, they would meet Jesus Christ. In it, they would see their need for a Savior. In it, they would encounter the crucifixion and the resurrection. They would see Jesus as John saw Jesus. It is my desire in the coming couple of weeks to engage in a study here in John chapter 1 to introduce to you Jesus Christ. That's what John does. In fact, if I were to summarize the entire purpose for the eyewitness account of John, I would find it in chapter 20 and verse 31 where John says this, but these are written that ye might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing ye might have life through his name. John says, literally, I have been inspired to write this account and I am passionate about it because I want to help people believe on Jesus Christ. I want to help people have eternal life. He is writing this to legitimately awaken faith, to shed light into darkness for unbelievers, but also to sustain faith in believers. And the more that we know Jesus, the stronger our faith is. John chapter 1, I'll begin reading here in verse 1 as John undertakes this introduction. If you don't have your Bibles, those verses will be here on the screen so that you can know this is God's Word. In the beginning was the Word. You cannot escape. That harkens back to Genesis 1, 1. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. Jesus Christ is being spoken of by John right off the bat. Though his name will not appear until we read it in verse 17, he is speaking of Jesus Christ. We have just concluded, as amazing as it is, 11 weeks we studied the Ten Commandments. I'm so long, I can get 11 sermons out of Ten Commandments. We have been introduced to the law of Moses. And now we pivot and we hinge to be introduced to Jesus Christ. And verse 17 is really communicating just that when it says, For the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. Now what we must understand about that, as one wrote, is this. John is contrasting Christ with Moses. Not because the law is not a gracious gift. It is a gracious gift, but the contrast is that Moses was pointing to grace and that Jesus Christ performs. He is, he's full of grace. Moses was reporting the words of God. Jesus is the word of God. The law mirrors the light of God. Jesus is the light of God. 
He concludes by saying to properly understand the use of the law, we must of necessity be introduced to Jesus Christ. For the grace of Christ is greater than the law. Which means in essence we cannot fully comprehend what we studied in the law until we are introduced to Jesus Christ. And that whole thought is summed up in Romans chapter 8 where we read this, For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. In the beginning points back to Genesis chapter 1. That's inescapable. It's literally the same verbiage. What John is doing here intentionally is he is pointing us to Jesus Christ. Rather than beginning with the story of his birth, John leaps immediately and confronts us with the deity of Jesus Christ in eternity John is is following up what Moses has done and he's pointing us, he's confronting us with the majesty of Jesus Christ. You and I should, upon concluding this study, stand back with newfound awe and reverence for the Lord Jesus Christ. I happen to know that we are experiential in our expectations when it comes to worship. We expect that there will be some sensation that that overtakes us. We are consumer-driven. We are selfishly driven to find what appeals to us. And John chapter 1 sets all that aside and says, let me just communicate truth to you. And this truth should impact you greatly. In the beginning was the Word. He starts by telling us, see how majestic Jesus Christ is. I wish that it was possible that every story, every interaction, every encounter with Jesus was recorded for us. I wish that we knew all of it. All that we know is what the Holy Spirit inspired the gospel writers to share with us. I wish we knew it all. It's an interesting thing that John tells us. John kind of had the same longing. He says in John 21, this is the disciple. He's talking about himself which testifieth of these things and wrote these things. And we know that his testimony is true. And there are also many other things which Jesus did, the which, if they should be written, every one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that should be written. Think about what John has just said. John has walked with Jesus for a little more than three years, and he says, I cannot possibly tell you everything that Jesus did. And I wasn't around for 30 of those years. I can't possibly tell you. In fact, I don't even think the world itself could contain the books of all that Jesus did. But one thing I know that John does, he answers the age-old question, who is Jesus Christ. He says, in effect, I can't tell you all the stories, but I can tell you who Jesus is. And I stand in front of you and say to you this morning, having studied the law, let me introduce you to Jesus Christ. And the first thing I want you to grasp is this. Jesus is eternal. You ever felt old? Stuff hurts, right? I like to deal. 
detail my cars. Cleaning the wheels on the cars is getting harder and harder because I have to get down. Now, I was going to do it, but then I was thinking, these suit pants are a little snug. If I go all the way down to mime cleaning the tires, I might have to end the service. I'm not going to do that. Ever felt old? We think in terms of years and days and months and hours. Jesus Christ is eternal. In John chapter 1 verse 1, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. Now there's an interesting verb. It appears three times in the first verse, and again in the second verse. It is the verb was. I don't want to bore you to death. That verb, as it is written, is in the imperfect tense. It communicates an ongoing state. An ongoing state. So if I were to amplify this verse with that tense of the verb in it, it would sound something like this. In the beginning was, and is, and always will be the word. And the word was, and is, and always will be with God. And the word was, and is, and always will be God. One author said this, and he's pretty smart because this makes me grind my gears just a little. Jesus Christ is pre-existence. He said it this way, he always was continuing. I can't make my brain understand eternity. I can't. Jesus had no beginning. Jesus Christ is eternal. That's what he is saying. Jesus Christ was and is and always will be. You say, but I know the Christmas story. I know when Jesus was born. I say to you, the scripture declares that Jesus is eternal. Jesus always was, Jesus always is, and Jesus always will be. That's comforting. For he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Forever extends in both directions. Jesus has never changed. In the Old Testament, when Moses wanted to know the name of God, God said to him, my name is I am that I am. In effect, my name is the verb to be. My name is eternal being. That's what God communicated. Well, repeatedly in John's gospel, Jesus will say, I am. It's the thought that he will, that he will always be, always has been, and always exists. So bold was Jesus that he even said this to the Jews in John eight fifty eight: Verily, verily. And when he says that, he means pay attention because I'm telling you the truth. I say unto you, before Abraham was, I am. He speaks of himself in the present continuous tense because there never was a time that Jesus Christ did not exist. Now when you go to Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1 and you read in the beginning God and you get to John chapter 1 and verse 1 you read in the beginning was the word you will note something there is no negotiation in there. There is nothing left up for debate. Rather than any time given to you to duck, they hit you right between the eyes with the fact that God exists and it is undeniable. In the beginning, God. In the beginning was the word. John means that there was literally never a time where Jesus was not. 
There is never a moment where Jesus is not, and there never will be a time where Jesus is not. I am glad that I have been gifted eternal life. And it is good to know that as long as eternity goes, Jesus will always be there. He is eternal. Not only is Jesus eternal, Jesus is God. Jesus is deity. Jesus is divine. In verse 14, we read probably the most important thing to know about the word in this. The word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory. The glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Why do I need to know Jesus? If in verse 1 we read that verb three times, was, and once in the second, and then again we'll note that in verse 1 there's the word, word, which is used three times, we grasp the word, word, means logos in the Greek. So it's reason, it's communication, it's explanation. Jesus is the reasoning about God. Jesus is the communication about God. Jesus is the explanation of God. He is the scene of the unseen. We can grasp that verse when we realize just that, that Jesus Christ is explaining to us. He was the explanation, and the explanation was made flesh. In the beginning was the communication, the explanation, and the explanation was with God, and the explanation was God. All that we know about God, we know through what Jesus did and who he was and what he said. In Revelation chapter 19, getting towards the end of days, we read this about Jesus and his return. And he was clothed with a vesture, dipped in blood, and his name is called The Word of God. Two verses later, we read staggering scripture. We'll read this. And out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron, and he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. In other words, that's a verse that's telling us that Jesus will strike the nations in the power of the Word of God that he speaks. And what John is saying is it's not just the sword of the word of God which comes out of his mouth. He is the word of God. He is the explanation of God. He is the communication. He is the reasoning. So he has in view all the revelation that comes from Jesus. All the truth that Jesus speaks. The witness that Jesus was. All the glory. All the light. All the words that come out of Jesus in his living His teaching, his dying, his resurrection, sum up all the revelation of God with the name, the word. It is a fact that it's the first word, it's the last word, it's the ultimate word, it's the absolute word, it's the true word, it's reliable. Jesus is telling us about God. He's the explanation of it. The writer of Hebrews helps us even a little further. He says this in Hebrews 1.1, God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners... Spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he hath made the worlds. Jesus Christ tells you everything you need to know about God. All that he is, all that he said, all that he did is a declaration, the explanation, the reasoning behind the communication of God. Jesus Christ is 
God. The writer goes on, does John in the second verse, and he says the same was in the beginning with God. With God. The little preposition with is also interesting. It means they were continually face to face. There was deep intimacy between Jesus Christ and God the Father, and it went on for all time. Jesus Christ is God. Now you say, hold on a second. Now I'm starting to feel the strain. Jesus Christ is God, and yet he's face to face with God. And in verse 2, he emphasizes it again so that we fully understand the same was in the beginning with God. This is the idea of the Trinity. How many of you have that one figured out? The Trinity. Uh-huh. It's moments like this that I discipline myself not to opine, but to simply read my notes. In the beginning was the Word. Jesus is eternal. And the word was with God, face-to-face with God, even implying drawn closer together. There's deep intimacy, and it has existed for all eternity. And the word was God. Jesus is deity. Jesus is divine. Jesus is God. He is both God and face-to-face with God. And herein we see the Trinity. Although our finite minds can't comprehend the mystery of it, Scripture's clear that God is one God who exists in three distinct persons. Each person fully God, and yet he is not three gods, but he is one God. And the Word, that is Jesus, was God. Jesus was, and the explicit meaning is this, God in essence and in character. When the Bible says his name shall be called Emmanuel, which means God with us, it is not that there was something divine about Jesus. It is fact, Jesus is God. You say, I'm not sure that I believe that. I could be so audacious as to say to you, if you do not believe that Jesus is God, then heaven is not your home. If you do not believe that Jesus is God, then your sins are not forgiven. If you do not believe that the word is God, then you need to be introduced to Jesus Christ initially for confession and salvation, for he was God in every way, yet he was separate and distinct as the Son. And this very phrase perfectly preserves the separate identity of Jesus while also stating that he is God. This is a stumbling block for cults and false religions everywhere. A little simple study would tell you the New World Translation of the Bible, which is published by the Jehovah's Witnesses, translates that phrase this way, and there was a God. The Word was a God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and they translate it, and the Word was a God. And with one little letter, people are damned to hell because they do not see Jesus as God. He is not a God. Jesus Christ is divine. The problem with John chapter 1 and verse 1 is that it is a stumbling block to any cult who denies the deity of Jesus Christ and there has to be a way around it even if we just insert one letter to change it. But Jesus Christ is divine. 
I'm introducing you to Jesus Christ. The brand already exists. The marketing strategy is already there. I'm just telling you who Jesus is. Jesus Christ is eternal. Jesus Christ is deity. He is God. He is divine. And Jesus Christ is creator. And now hold on a second. I don't understand that in verse 3. All things were made by him. And without him was not anything made that was made. Speaking of Jesus. If you have trouble believing Genesis 1, 1, in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth, you have trouble believing John chapter 1 and verse 1, in the beginning was the word, and you have trouble grasping verse 3, that he is creator. You'll have even more trouble with Colossians 1, which says in verses 16 and 17 this, for by him, speaking of Jesus... Were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him. And he is before all things and by him all things consist. One of the strongest scriptural arguments for the deity of Jesus Christ is the comparison of Genesis 1-1 with John 1-1. And the word all at the beginning of verse 3 is kind of expounded on in Paul's letter in Colossians. All things individually, all things separately, even down to the most intimate details of creation, that was Jesus. And the world pushes against this. Let's be logical for just a second. If Jesus Christ is the creator, then the bottom line for sinful man begins to become crystal clear. If Jesus Christ is the creator, then he must be God, comparing John 1.1 with Genesis 1.1. If he is God, then, then he must be telling the truth about himself in every fashion. And if he's telling the truth about himself in every fashion because he is God, then he must have right to judge my sin and he must have the right to reign over my life. If he created me, he knows everything about me. If he is God and he always tells the truth, then he has the right to judge my sin and declare that I need a savior. And if I am saved, to be Lord and master and to reign over my life. People don't like that thought. It implies... A submission. Think about this for just a second. The word who became flesh and dwelt among us, taught us, healed us, rebuked us, protected us, loved us, and died for us. He created the universe. Remember to retain the mystery of the Trinity from verse 1. Don't leave it as soon as you get to verse 3. All things were made through him. Yes, God was acting through the word. But the word is God. Don't let yourself diminish the majesty of the work of Christ, one wrote. He was the Father's agent in the creation of all things. God, the word, created the world. Your Savior, your Lord, your friend is the creator. That's what Jesus says. I have called you my friends if you do whatsoever I have commanded you to do. I don't know a lot of influential people. I am not a person of influence. I cannot go very high up the ladder, but I do know the creator of the universe. And we don't allow that thought to hit us as we should. That is a potent realization. That as a believer, I am friends with the creator of the world. Some people think to themselves, well, I'm too poor to know anybody influential. 
I'm too ugly to know anybody influential. I'm too unimportant to know any inf- anybody influential. And all of those things are true. You are dumb and ugly and poor, I know. It's just part of life for all of us. But if you are a child of God, you do know somebody influential. The creator of the universe is your Lord and your Savior and your friend. This is infinitely deep theology. There was a man named Charles Steinmetz. He was a genius, mechanically speaking. He and I had a lot in common. He could fix anything. I've never fixed anything in my life. If my microphone stops, somebody's going to have to come up here and put batteries in it for me. I don't know. But not like Charles Steinmetz. He worked for Henry Ford. It was said of him that he could design a machine in his mind down to all of the intricate details and that he could fix a machine in his mind because he just knew every working mechanical part of it. The story goes that one day the assembly line in the Ford plant broke down. Try as they may, none of Henry Ford's men could fix it. So they called in Mr. Steinmetz. He tinkered with it for just a few minutes and he threw the switch and the whole assembly line began to run again. A few days later, the story goes that Henry Ford received a bill from Charles Steinmetz for $10,000. Mr. Ford wrote back and he said, Charlie, don't you think your bill is a little high for just a little bit of tinkering? Steinmetz wrote back a revised bill, and it said this, tinkering $10, knowing where to tinker, $9,990. You can't pay for that experience, man. Not paying for one or two minutes of tinkering. I'm paying for everything that went into the two minutes of tinkering. Now, if I think of that little story, I stop for just a second, and I realize theology is big. Jesus is eternal. What does that mean? Well, he says he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He has always been, he always is, and he always will be, and he said he will never leave me nor forsake me. That is comforting. That's a big concept brought down to a comforting level. Jesus is God. That means I literally am friends with God who created all, and if Jesus is the creator, here's the truth. As the creator, only Jesus knows where the tinkering in my life should be done. Only Jesus knows which screw needs tightened, which bolt or belt needs loosened. Only Jesus knows exactly that. And and if that's true, then everything that happens in my life, I realize Jesus Christ is in control of and has all the knowledge and experience to carry off. Jesus knows me. Every intimate detail of me. There are some things that I wish were different about me. But this is what Jesus did. All of us can find or focus on flaws. Few of us are comforted by the fact that when he begins to twist and turn and loosen and tighten, he's the creator. He knows exactly what he's doing. I think that's why we should know what God wants us to do with our lives. I know that God has called me to be a preacher of the gospel, but I'm not just called to be a preacher. 
I believe that God has called me and equipped me, spiritually speaking, to pastor. That doesn't mean I'm a good one. That doesn't mean I'm a great one. I just think that's what God has called me to do. But I don't just think that God has called me to merely be a pastor at large. I believe that God has called me to pastor this church. When I grasp that explicit nature of his design, it comforts me and it gives me endurance and patience, which is enduring with joy all that comes at me because my creator God devised and designed this. And so I say to you in a matter of comfort, whatever tinkering he's doing in your life, it is because he is the creator and he knows every intimate detail. He's the one who designed it. Of course he can run it and fix it. Jesus is creator. But he's also life and light. In verse 4 he says, in him was life and the life was the light of men. 36 times in this gospel, John uses the word life. I think he's talking here about spiritual light, but he he says in verse 5, the light shined in darkness and the darkness comprehended it not. Light is always pressing in on darkness, always invading where the darkness is. Literally, verse 5 means that the light is shining continually in the darkness. Jesus Christ is continually bombarding the world of darkness through the work of his Holy Spirit, even in nature and conscience and the scriptures to spread light. That is amazing grace and that is incredible love. Verse 10 tells us something. It says he was in the world and the world was made by him. And the world knew him not. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. That means receiving the life that Jesus gives is a matter of incredible simplicity. Becoming one of God's own comes by receiving him. As many as received him to them gave he power to become the sons of God to those that believe on his name. One wrote this, and I love it. Think of it. The one who said, let there be light. The one whose love constrained him to shine his saving light through creation and conscience. The one who mercifully sheathed his light in a human body so that he might bring light to men. The one who set aside a special people for himself to be a light to the nations was rejected. Yet today he is still light and continues to seek to pry his way into hostile hearts. It's amazing love that Jesus is life and light. Think for a second that he left heaven and came to earth to seek and to save that which was lost. Think of the implication that Jesus is life and light. And we who are followers of Christ are light in a dark world, and we don't hide the light under a bushel, we let the light shine. That's our responsibility. It even helps us to see when Jesus is conversing with Nicodemus in John chapter 3, and he says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. The whole reason that Jesus came was to give life, to shed light. We should believe on who Jesus is and receive him as our own. If someone were to ask you, what does God look like? Point them to Jesus. If someone were to ask you, how does God love? Point them to Jesus. Don't ever point them to an individual. 
We'll never point them to some influential person or spiritual leader. Make sure they see Jesus. When one day in heaven we see God in all his glory, you're going to be looking at, and I'm going to be looking at, none other than our sovereign Lord Jesus. In Colossians 1.14 we read, In whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins, who is the image of the invisible God. Because Jesus Christ is who he is, he can do what he said and he can fulfill every promise he ever made and he can accomplish everything he ever said he would do. Now, remember I said a moment ago that John uses the word life some 36 times in this gospel. Truth he mentions 25 times in this gospel and 20 other times in his epistles. 80 times in this he talks about love, but 100 times in the gospel he uses the word belief. And if you put all of that together, what he is doing is he is desirous that we would believe the truth so that we can enter into a relationship of love with the Lord Jesus Christ. I referenced a bit ago that we've become experiential. We've not just become experiential, we have become consumer-driven. And what can happen to veteran people like us is we can hear concepts of this magnitude. And this is somewhat apologetic in its nature, introducing Jesus Christ in contrast to the law. And Jesus is eternal, and Jesus is divine, and Jesus is creator, and Jesus is life, and Jesus is light. All of these are are literal foundational cornerstones of what we believe and who we are. But sometimes in that, we lose the practicality of it. And when we lose the practicality of it, and all that we see it as is big data points that we have to hold on to and know, we, we don't have it hit us as it should. But I want you to enter back into the beginning when John said, if I could just tell you every story, if it was possible to write down every conversation and every lesson and every miracle, not even the world could contain the books, but I want you to sense the passion in John where he is desperate for you to meet Jesus Christ. He wishes in a way that he didn't have to be here with you by letter. He wishes that he could stand in front of you and say to you, if if you only knew him, if you were only around him, if you only heard him, if you only saw him, you would know that he was eternal. You would grasp that he was God and he was with us. That he willingly laid down his life that no man could take. He was God. He is the creator. Every intimate detail of creation he was in control of. I watched him calm waves and stop wind and curse a fig tree. I saw him catch a fish and pull a coin out of its mouth. I've seen him literally direct creation. I've seen him heal ailments that no doctor or physician had any chance of even figuring out and he healed them and stopped an issue of blood on the spot and he gave life where death was. I'm telling you, he is the creator. He is light and he is light. The passion would come through John and it would hit us and perhaps in no other way than this. I better, I better see his majesty and I better bow humbly before Jesus. This should dominate and dictate who I am. I've pastored getting longer and longer, more and more experience. I, it's valuable. I'm in one of the few career arcs where the more gray you get and the longer you've been one place, the more it should be, the more respect people have for it. We're working on that part. But it's like people want to listen if you have a little gray hair, so I'm working on it. I'm trying. 
the less hair you have, the more weight to your message. I'm trying. I'm doing all. The more belly you have, the more weight to your message. I've seen a lot of preachers in my life. But as I've experienced life in ministry, and this is about me, we don't talk about Jesus enough. I mean, Jesus is eternal, and he's divine, and he's creator, and he's life and light. But most of my pastoral conversations are down at the level of my shoes. We talk about stuff and things, and we're, we're carnally minded, and we're selfishly driven, and we're, we're so dominated by what appeals to us and what we want. And, and most of the conversations are down there. I, I, I honestly think that rising tide lifts all ships. If our eyes went up to Jesus and we bowed in reverence before his majesty, I think a lot of the things that ail us and control us and dominate us and infuse us with anxiety and fear and confusion would dissipate because we would see theology as practical. And so a lot of the things that we are fussing about and squandering time and energy and life and years on matter not at all when we see him. And we know that the moment that we enter eternity and we see the Lord Jesus, we'll say stuff like, well, I know this world won't matter when I see him. We'll see him. Well, let me introduce you to him. See him as he is here and now, not there and then. See him as he is and bow before him. Change what you're doing because of who Jesus is. Would you please bow your heads just for a moment? Thanks for listening this week to the Graceway Baptist Church Podcast. For more information about our church and our ministries, head on over to our website at gracewaycharlotte.org. We are a church located in South Charlotte. We are growing and our ministries are doing big things for Christ. If you're looking for a way to get plugged into what we're doing, email us at info at gracewaycharlotte.org. Also, stay in the loop with everything happening by following us on Facebook and Instagram. Our handle is Graceway Charlotte. Thanks again for listening to the Graceway Charlotte podcast. We'll see you next week.